Welcome to NVC Life. I'm Rochelle Lamb, veteran NVC trainer and relationship coach, helping listeners navigate interpersonal conflict and ground more deeply into relational living. Greetings, fellow humans. Last week, I listened to a podcast interview that captivated me during its entire 90 minutes. Russ Roberts is the host of Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, and his guest was Marco Ramos, MD, PhD, historian of medicine, and psychiatrist at Yale University. Ramos came to Roberts' attention when he read an article he had written in the spring of last year for the Boston Review. It was titled, Mental Illness is Not in Your Head. The Econ Talk podcast episode, which I now refer to, is titled Misunderstanding Mental Illness. During the course of their conversation, Roberts and Ramos touch on mental health, biology, medications, culture, and capitalism. About midway through their conversation, Ramos asks the question, what is it in this culture that is making people ill? I was so grateful to hear him raise it in the way that he did, and I've lifted a few excerpts from their conversation that I think accurately reflect the dis-ease of our modern world, if you will. The description for the podcast episode reads as follows. When psychiatrist Marco Ramos of Yale University prescribes antidepressants to patients in distress and they ask him how they work, Ramos admits, we don't really know. And too often, they don't work at all. Despite decades of brain research and billions of dollars spent, psychiatry has made little progress in understanding mental illness. Listen as Ramos explains to EconTalk's Russ Roberts how the myth of the biological basis for mental illness began, why it stubbornly persists, and why honesty about what we know and don't know is the best policy. I urge you to listen to the full interview, and I will leave a link in the show notes. But for now, I'm going to skip ahead to the section of the interview that explores the link between mental health and culture. Host Russ Roberts. So here's an area where the idea that it's not in your brain is so jarring. The radical idea is that maybe, and a thoughtful scientific person has to entertain this radical idea because at least the crude evidence is that many societies don't suffer from these problems. Many of these problems appear to be what we would call first world or modern problems. Depression does not seem to be common among people who are not of the modern era, whether they're currently living now or in the past. And again, I don't want to romanticize those communities. They have other problems. But it does make you wonder why it is that in one of the richest societies, in one of the richest times, depression is on the rise. And you can say, well, that's just a diagnostic change. Suicide is on the rise among young people, as far as I understand it. Something has gone wrong. It's untenable. When you think about it, when you step outside all the cultural baggage we have around mental illness, it's untenable that it's just the fact that brains aren't working as well as they used to. That is literally a non-scientific hypothesis. It cannot be maintained. So, you have an explanation. I'm going to disagree with it, but give us your explanation. Marco Ramos responds, Yes, 
because this is such a big picture conversation, I'm going to bring it down to a particular case, which is here at the university where I teach at Yale and the very serious matter of suicide, which is something that has happened among students here, obviously. But also it's an issue, as you've been saying, in young people generally. Particularly, and this tends to get more media attention, but it's an issue more broadly at these elite academic institutions. And this question emerges like, how could someone who has got everything to look forward to turn to something like that? There must be something wrong with them, right? That is the underlying assumption. And the next position is, why couldn't they get access to mental health care? So that's sort of our reflexive script that we run down. There's suicide. There was something wrong with them. Why didn't they get access to mental health care? And I want to push back on that script. And I want to suggest that in many ways, and there's been this big push at this university in response to some of the high-profile suicides, there's been this big push to expand access to mental health services for the student and for students. And again, who couldn't agree with that? Who couldn't agree with more mental health services? But what I really feel, and this is something that I actually unpack with students in my seminar on madness, on the history of madness, is that this immediate push to increase access to mental health services is also a way of ignoring the actual reasons structurally, socially, culturally, that people are feeling sick at an institution that is supposed to be so privileged like Yale. And so... What if instead of just demanding access to individualized care, where you're likely going to get a psychopharmaceutical and you're likely going to get some therapy in the most ideal circumstances, what if in addition to that, and I'm not saying we shouldn't provide individuals with care, but what if in addition to that, we had a serious conversation about what it is in this culture that is making people ill? How can we move beyond the question of access to start to ask collectively what is happening in our micro society here that people are feeling so sick that sometimes they feel the only way out is suicide, right? And those same dynamics are affecting all sorts of other people in less dramatic ways that don't necessarily result in that, right? But are still affecting people nevertheless. And the issue that I have with this focus on access to mental health care And then this focus on the illness is in that person's brain who took their life is that it forecloses a deeper examination of what is it about this place that is, to put it technically, pathogenic. What is it about this larger culture that we're sitting in that is making us ill and what might we do about it? Russ Roberts now says, yeah, it's incredibly sad to me. I think economists don't like to talk about this. They would say, oh, this is outside economics. It's not relevant. We talk about incentives. We talk about well-being, though we pretend to, and we pretend to talk about people maximizing their well-being, and we assume it's connected to their access to material goods. Certainly, people at both ends of the material well-being spectrum, the top, let's say 20, 10, 5% at one end, versus the people at the bottom who are facing a despair of a different kind. Both groups are in despair to me, and I think your insight is profound. 
I feel the same way about the tragedy of mass shootings. We have a conversation about gun control. It's very formulaic, but for some reason, we cannot have a conversation about why it is that someone finds it compelling to kill strangers. Something has gone deeply wrong. You could imagine it happening once, twice, but for it to happen occasionally as it does now in America is not a statement about gun control. The idea that we don't look at the underlying problem. It is bizarre. Marco Ramos responds, yeah, it is. And increasingly, and just to build on your example of gun control and mass shootings, mental health always emerges in these conversations. And that, to me, is the most absurd of the uses of mental health. I feel like I have to state this explicitly, even though it should be obvious. But psychiatrists cannot predict when someone is going to commit suicide or when someone is going to kill someone. We have tried over many, many years to figure that out, and we are nowhere closer. They have done rigorous studies that have shown that we are just unable to do it. And part of the reason is these are just such rare events that they're very difficult to predict. They're so contingent, etc., and our science isn't that great, as we've been discussing in the first place. But nevertheless, and this happens on across the political divide of liberals asking for more mental health care to conservatives, and it's a similar gut reaction, this cultural script, that there's this larger social issue. There needs to be more mental health. And to me, that forecloses the conversation that you are trying to get at, which is, what is more broadly going on here? What is happening as a society that's making this response, whether it's mass shootings or homelessness or suicide? What's happening that makes this response possible, sensible, the thing that someone feels like they need to do? What's happening at a broader level? And so to underscore the ideas that jumped out at me, they were, what is it in this culture that is making people ill? And then we have the idea that we don't look at the underlying problem. It is bizarre. And finally, what's happening at a broader level? If we could be asking ourselves these questions ongoingly and seriously and being willing to engage at a very deep level, observing what has gone on up until now. And instead of coming up with these hopeful solutions, simply sitting in this place of really wrestling with where we're at, I think we'd be much better equipped to realistically deal with the challenges that are in front of us. And I mean, everything that I've just shared with you here runs parallel to what we hear in Gabor Maté's book on the myth of normal and along many other thinkers and authors who have long thought that there are problems that are happening to us at a societal level. Think of Jadu Krishnamurti, who said, it is no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. And so it would be a good idea to not work so hard at adjusting to it, 
but instead to recognize that there is a lot of illness that is happening at the socio-cultural level. And maybe then, maybe then we could actually roll up our sleeves and get some real meaningful work done. And I'm sure we would be grieving a lot in the process. But I'm going to end right here for this episode. And again, I'm going to include those show notes. And I would encourage you to go and listen to the podcast interview. And I'd love to hear what you think about it afterwards. The two men are not in agreement on everything that they're speaking about, but they have a really meaningful conversation. Thank you for tuning into NBC Life. For future episodes, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube. For free resources or to book a private session with me, head over to rochellelam.com. Until the next time, stay sane, grateful, and generous. Thank you.